This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about things going on in your life, questions about what we believe and why we believe these things as Christians. All you have to do is call us, and I'll do the best I can to answer. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You also can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Again, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call number banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. A uh, quick scheduling note and then we'll get to some questions. Uh, we will not here at Calvary Chapel be having our Wednesday night study next week beginning Sunday and all through next week we'll be back on our regular schedule um, that will be uh, one live in-person service on Sunday and then we'll be back on Wednesday and Fridays as well. So thank you for your patience while we've been dealing with this COVID-19 um, situation at our church. One other thing I want to say, I want to extend a happy birthday to one of my most faithful listeners, Nathan. Nathan, God bless you. I pray for you all the time. I'm really, really proud of you and the way you love God's word. Man, it's an encouragement and an inspiration to so many. So happy birthday, Nathan. Okay, let's get to some questions. I had one sent in yesterday right at the end of the program, and I didn't get a chance to answer it, so I promised to do it at the top of the show today. It is from Dorian, who called in uh, to the studio producer, and he said he wants to know, my son is asking, how is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit one guy? What is Pastor Ron's perspective on this concept? Dorian, it's hard to explain to uh, adults, uh, and you don't tell me how old your son is, but it's hard to explain to adults um, the, the concept of the Trinity. But but the question that you asked, I think would be easier understood, is, is uh, if you said, how is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit one God? That would be easy because that's true. But they're not one guy or one person. They're three different persons. The Father is the person, the Son is a person, and the Holy Spirit is a person. All have the same attributes. 
It is, according to Colossians, the fullness, Colossians chapter 2, the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. So the fullness. God is one, but he's more than one in terms of consistency. Now, I don't want to make this confusing because I want your son to be able to understand it. There are three different ministries by the three persons of the triune God. The Father's ministry was to send the Son. God the Father lives in unapproachable light. So the Father sent the Son. The Son's job was to reveal the person of the Father. Now, he did that in the way he lived his life. He did that in his perfect sinlessness. He did that in spite of taking on flesh, becoming one of us. So the Father sent the Son, who is also God, and he died for our sins. Now, when Jesus was leaving, he told his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. I will send you, it's good for you that I go away, I will send you another me. And literally, that's what he said, another me. They're different persons, but they're the same identically in substance. And he will be with you. And Jesus I introduced the Holy Spirit who will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And the Holy Spirit will always point to Jesus. So you can see the three different ministries. The Father is in heaven. The Son now, in a physically glorified, resurrected body, is seated at the right hand of power. But the Holy Spirit is God active on this earth. Jesus said, where the Spirit goes, you can't see. Just like the wind, you can feel it, but you can't see it. Well, the Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside us and convicts us of sin. He's the one who draws us to Jesus. And he's the one who seals our salvation with a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, according to Ephesians chapter 1. So, one God, but three different persons. So, tell your son that they're not three different guys. They're th- or, 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 I'm sorry, tell your son, they're not one guy. They're three different persons or personalities with different ministries that make up the triune God. One other thing that might help, and your son would understand this, we can all do math. One plus one plus one is three. And it gets confusing. People say, well, if, if there's three of them, that's three. But if you if you consider it this way, one times one times one is still one. And that's the idea, Dorian, of what the Holy Spirit does. Not one guy, three persons, one God. So, Dorian, I hope that helps and hope your son was listening as well. Thank you for the call yesterday. Now, while we await your calls, let me go to a question Susan sent in. She said, Pastor Ron, how could God love Jacob? And hate Esau. I thought God couldn't hate. I won't get to it today, but I got another question about God hating Susan. Um, this is sort of Jewish parallelism. Um, remember, we're trying to describe an infinite God. We only have human words to do it. So it's not that God hated Esau. It's just that God couldn't love Esau the way He loved Jacob. Now, I think one of the things that we have to look at when we consider Jacob and Esau, is that neither of them were much worthy of love. Jacob was a con man. Jacob was always trying to get things done on his own terms. He's always trying to make deals with God. 
Esau, on the other hand, only cared about that which was right before him. You know, he sold his birthright. As the oldest son, he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. So you see, God could love Jacob because Jacob would eventually wrestle with God in Genesis 32. He would, earlier, he would lay on that rock pillow in Bethel and see the ladder where angels were ascending and descending to heaven. God knew that Jacob would eventually win that wrestling match by surrendering, by losing it. That chapter, Susan, Genesis 32, is is sort of my life chapter. And so God could love Jacob and he could extend mercy to Jacob. He couldn't do the same thing to Esau, even though he wanted to. So again, with this Jewish parallelism, the idea is that God loved Jacob. He loved Esau. But Esau wouldn't accept his love, so the outcome was as though he hated Esau. If you ever think about people who refuse Jesus Christ, and you think about a father in heaven with a broken heart, he's so willing, eager to pour out his love, and yet he doesn't have the ability to. And yet someone like me, who's no better than that person who rejects Jesus Christ, God is able to pour out his love on me. So if you would look at it in terms of a comparison, somebody would say, well, boy, God really loves Pastor Ron. But in comparison, it's as though God hates this other person. And we'll find in the other question when I get to it, Susan, that there are some things that God does hate. So hope that answers your question. I thank you for sending it. Here is a question sent in anonymously. It seems impossible that we could be happy in heaven knowing our loved ones didn't make it. I'm beginning to believe that a lot more really good people than we think are going to end up in heaven. Uh, Anonymous, the problem with, with your premise is that Jesus himself said that the road to heaven is narrow and found by few. Relatively speaking, now there's going to be multiplied billions of people in heaven. But the numbers of people who are going to suffer for eternity in hell, in the lake of fire, is enormous in comparison. And I know we like to think, well, you know, he was a good person or she was a good person, but, but Jesus said he was the only way to get to heaven. And what we've got to do, honestly now, we've got to, to, to decide if we believe what it says or if we're going to tweak it because there's a concept called hell that makes us uncomfortable. As far as being happy in heaven, knowing our loved ones didn't make it, um, I don't know how God's going to do this, but we know that heaven is going to be a whole new order of things. We know specifically there'll be no more sorrow, no more grief, no more pain. So we know that we won't grieve our loved ones who didn't make it. And the only way that can happen is when we step outside of time and space and into that whole new order, um, our focus is going to be on Jesus. It's going to be like all of our pain and our bad memories are going to be swiped from our brain. And we're not going to know. We're just not going to know. And I think one of the ways that we have to find a, a, a peace, a place of comfort with this concept 
is understanding that God is righteous, that God is just, and that God did every single thing he could to bring our loved ones to faith in Jesus Christ. Short of forcing us to believe, God does everything he can, and if people simply won't believe, then we've got to rest in the goodness, the fairness, and the justice of God, that God did everything and they simply refused. And I think we've got to be willing to wrestle with this issue. I know emotionally it's a very difficult one. I have family members that are not in heaven. I have a son who's not yet born again. I'm still believing that God is going to get him. I pray for him constantly. But the truth is, if they reject it, that's not on God. And we're going to be so consumed with the fullness of God, with, with, with what we would call happiness and what the Bible calls joy. We're going to be so consumed with a joy that is beyond anything that we can describe that we're simply not going to worry about those other kinds of things. You know, we live in a culture anonymous where people say, well, you know, my mother's looking down and, uh, on me from heaven or my, my father's gone to heaven and he's going to protect me, watch out for me. Those things aren't true. If our loved ones are in heaven, they're going to be looking at Jesus. If there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, if they were looking down on your life or my life, well, the truth would be that we would fill their heart with sadness repeatedly. But, you see, they're going to be with Jesus. They're going to be staring at Jesus. They're going to be worshiping him. And they're going to be experiencing things that we can only dream about. So never forget, when you're discussing God's judgment, that every judgment he makes is fair and just. You know, not this Wednesday tonight, because we're not uh, having a midweek service tonight. Next Wednesday in Genesis chapter 15, uh, we're going to be told that um, at the end of of the chapter that that God gives the Amorites 400 years and enslaves his people for those 400 years in order to give the Amorites the opportunity to choose him or reject him. And of course, he says that the sin of the Amorites is not yet full, and we know it does. So then God's going to judge them. It's not God's fault. It's the fault of the man or the woman who rejects him. And that's really, really important for us to understand. So Anonymous, I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, I hope it breaks your heart that your loved ones aren't on their way to heaven. But if it really breaks your heart, then the response for you ought to be to be sure that two things. One, you're living for Jesus so visibly they can see your life and the joy that you have. But the second response, the more practical response, is that you're telling them about Jesus every opportunity you get. If nice people went to heaven, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. Our Bible says there's no one good, not even one. No one who seeks God. We have to wrestle with whether or not we really believe that or not. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. 
Danny says, my question is about men who call themselves apostles and prophets in the church today. Is that biblical? Um, Danny, it's actually antithetical to what the Bible teaches. So no, it's not. Men who appoint themselves as apostles or prophets are false teachers. And we need to really be on guard. We need to be wary of them. Because they'll lead us astray. They'll lead us into error. I've said often to our church that I really don't get why anybody would want to speak for God. To stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, or to declare yourself a prophet, or even worse, I think, an apostle, is really demonstrating that that they've lost all fear of God. You know, when an apostle is speaking, when a prophet, a true prophet is speaking, they're judged by 100% accuracy. And we don't have anybody who meets that standard. Ephesians chapter 2 very clearly says that the church and the Greek language is important here because of the tenses. And it says the church is being built. That's current, present, active tense on a foundation that has already been laid. It's finished. It's in the past. It's over. And that foundation is the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, No one can lay any foundation other than that which is already laid by God. And that foundation was the apostles, the twelve, including Matthias, adding Paul. That was the foundation of the church. The prophets, the New Testament prophets, all of the apostles, of course, were prophets, but there were other prophets, Matthew, Mark, the writers of our New Testament. A man named Agabus, I call Agabus, I call him the dramatic prophet. Philip had four daughters were prophetesses. You see, they spoke forth the word of God. But that foundation has already been laid, and now for 2,000 years, that foundation has supported the building of a church, the church in general, the church universal. All of that to say, if somebody says they're an apostle or a prophet, It's a title that they've taken to themselves. And when they do that, they no longer speak for God. They're speaking for themselves and need to be avoided. So, Danny, I hope that is clear to you. Anybody who calls themselves a prophet or an apostle um, is contradicting what the Word has already told us. Here is a question... This one is from Roger. He says, I think those who say they are Christians but affirming homosexuality are outside of the faith. What do you think? Roger, um, they're certainly wrong, but but I can't judge their heart. Um, I think those who affirm the behavior of homosexuals ought to have a healthy fear of God. Jesus said, anyone who makes one of my little ones stumble, it would be better if they were born a millstone be tied around their neck and thrown in the deepest darkest sea. I mean, it's really important to God that we rightly represent him. 
Um, but I think there are some real Christians, a few, who are so empathetic, they're invested more in what the world around us says than what the Word of God says, um, that I think we'll find some of those people in heaven. Again, I don't think many. I think uh, the affirming of homosexuality is a rejection of Jesus Christ. I think it's a rejection of love. We, we, we can't claim that we love. Jesus said that they would know us by our love. And he didn't mean the kind of sloppy love that the world says, well, you know, they just love each other and why would God punish them for loving somebody else? That just doesn't... Well, God loves them so much he wants them in heaven. And we who are believers are his mouthpiece to them. When I see churches, and there are many, I've seen them a lot more often. It seems as though the media is giving them more exposure. When I see churches who let sinners walk in and say nothing about their sin, that's a church that knows nothing of Jesus Christ. Nothing at all. We got to tell them the truth. We got to tell them the truth in love. And if we're not willing to do that, then we're rejecting Jesus as well. We're inside of five minutes. Here's an email that just came in from anonymous. Um, Pastor Ron, I read an article about the COVID outbreak that affected your church. You said we kept all the rules to the letter of the law. I take full responsibility. What are you guilty of? Why do you take it upon yourself to be responsible for church members getting sick? Satan is the accuser of the brethren and no doubt is dancing and jumping with joy at your confession. My Bible tells me that God has control of all of the plagues and pestilences in Revelation 16.9. Well, those are different plagues, of course. Um, this COVID crisis is not um, a, 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 a judgment sent by God. I, I think we really need to understand that God judges unbelievers. He doesn't judge believers because we've already been judged. Now, the reason I said, and I think this has to be personal anonymous, um, um, my heart is broken that so many of our people are affected by um, the outbreak of COVID-19. Um, as I sit here talking today, there are people who are in their homes and they are suffering. Um, I don't think we have anybody in a life-threatening situation, nothing like that. But it, it bothers me deeply that they're hurting. Um, we did keep the rules to the letter of the law. And then um, after, I don't know, five, six weeks after we came back, you know, when the governor said that church should resume meeting on the first Sunday in May, we did that. And we did the social distancing and every other row seating. We did all those things. We banned hugging. We changed the way we do our meet and greet and all those things. And it just seemed weird. Now, one of the things that you need to understand is that uh, when we came back from that quarantine, people were hurting. Isolation isn't good for people. And we wanted to love on them so much, and we just couldn't do it. And finally, um, in June, 
um, I said to the church, so many people were saying, can we start hugging again? And and I finally said to the church, look, I'm not your parent. Um, if you want to hug and the person you're hugging doesn't mind, that's between you and them. If somebody minds hugging, stay away. Don't be offended. But if you want to hug and if you want people to hug you, then that's between you and them. Uh, honestly, Anonymous, I would, I, would, I would change that now, knowing what I know now. Now, we didn't know any of this was going to happen. At that point, we hadn't had a single positive test. Um, we, we kind of felt like we were sort of protected from it. And I don't mean that God would protect us and not protect others, but, but it just wasn't an issue. And the hugging and the need to love seemed more important. And honestly, my apology was simply that one thing. I should not have said, as a leader of this church, I, had, I made the decision. I took responsibility for saying it's okay to hug. And I wouldn't do that. You know, I've had pastors from all over the country call me now and say, well, okay, we're, we're all dealing with this. I don't know why we're the only ones that seem to be in the news. But um, what would you do different? I said, same thing. That's the only thing I would do differently. Uh, when we come back on Sunday, we won't hug. We will be wearing masks. That's the governor's orders. We will go back to um, every other row seating and, and following the letter of the law. The truth of the matter is, I didn't cause the COVID out- outbreak. Um, maybe some people would have been shielded from it if we didn't hug. I don't know. For that, I took responsibility. So, Anonymous, thank you for that. I have been all over the news. I told Paula yesterday, you know, all I've ever wanted to do is make Jesus famous. I didn't want to be infamous myself. I appreciate the intent, the heart of your email. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585. We'd love to have your calls, 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the Word to Stand On for Life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. We have 30 minutes left. The phones are quiet all week. 340-9585. Here's a question from Fred. Pastor Ron, what books can you recommend about the reliability of the New Testament documents? Um, Fred, I'm going to give you kind of a, a, a variety of books um, uh, going from exceptionally scholarly and difficult to simpler and simpler to sort of whet your appetite. Um, my favorite book ever about this is a book by F.F. F. Bruce, uh, as in Frank Frank. That's not the name, but F.F. F. Bruce called the New Testament documents. Are they reliable? That's just a question. Um, he was an English scholar. He is brilliant and can at times be difficult to read. He's just smarter than the rest of us. But I highly, highly, highly recommend that. 
another one on the very high end in terms of scholarship that that uh, can also be a bit difficult, even tedious, but has all the information. There's a book by Josh McDowell called uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I think the new uh, edition of that is called The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And not only does it deal with the New Testament documents and the reliability of our New Testament, but it deals with our faith. It's a big, big book, and and I personally think everybody um, ought to have that in their in their library. I mean, it's just something that you can deal with all the questions: how we got our Bible. Um, um, it's just a defense of the faith that is excellent. Um, a little bit easier and maybe even a little more interesting is um, the book The Case for the Bible. Um, it's a book, um, boy, his name just in Lee, what's, I'll think of it, but but uh, um, The Case for the Bible, um, you Google that and it will come up. Uh, Lee Strobel, and um, you will enjoy that. And then if you want something that's not quite as comprehensive as any of those, there are two little books by a man named Paul Little, L-Y-T-T-L-E. And the first one is Know What You Believe, and the second one is Know Why You Believe. And in the Know Why You Believe, he deals with um, our New Testament and and the reliability of the New Testament. So that is really a good one um, sort of whet your appetite and get into the deeper stuff. Thank you, Fred, for the question. Let's go to Ramon on line one from San Antonio. Ramon, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor. How you doing? I'm doing well, Ramon. Thank you. Very good. Um, I was going to ask you what your opinion was. I'm doing a Bible study with my daughters. They're 7, 9, and 11. Mm-hmm. And I was reading for them word for word and, and first Samuel, but they kind of weren't really grasping it. So I, I paraphrased it, and it seemed like they understood more of what I was talking about. Um, do you recommend reading ahead of time and then paraphrasing for them, or do you think it's more important for them to actually go word for word through the Bible? Uh, I, I actually think both of those things, Ramona, are really important. I would reverse the order. I would say the first thing to do is to make sure that you're reading it to them. Certainly you're reading it, but, but that you're reading it to them. And then as you sit down and start teaching them, um, then comes the place for the paraphrase. You know, it's it's um, like reading a King James and finding that it's awkward because some of the words from 1611 have a different meaning than now. And then you get an NIV or a, um, a New Living Translation or something and gives you uh, not a paraphrase, but a, 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 a more modern explanation of what it says. And I think your kids, especially at their age, I think your kids would really benefit from you taking the time to sit down and say, well, here's what it says. Let's let's read what it says and then ask them what is confusing to you about that. And then that will open up the opportunity for you to, to explain to them. And two things will happen. One, they'll think you're the smartest guy in the world. But what they're really going to do is they're going to realize that the Bible is accessible even to kids. You know, um, Ramon, what we do here at Calvary Chapel, we teach our kids the Bible verse by verse. Um, you know, when we start them in the nursery, we got people holding them, quoting scriptures to them, um, praying for them. 
um, when they go up in grades, we, we, we start teaching the Bible verse by verse at their level. And by the time they get to be mid-elementary school, they have a foundation that other kids don't have. Uh, we, we, we try not just to tell kids Bible stories. We don't open kids' books. What we do is we teach them the Word. And the Holy Spirit, this book is living and active, and the Holy Spirit will minister to them. He will put that deposit into their heart. And um, believe me, um, it's supernatural. We, sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. So again, quick review. You read it to them. Sit down and read it, or, or sometimes better yet, let them read it. If their reading is proficient, um, uh, let them read it. Read um, uh, a section, a short section, and then let one of the other children read the same thing, then let the other one read the same thing. Uh, repetition is really a good thing. And then you can sit down and sort of break it down to them. And believe me, they'll understand. You know, Ramon, um, I, I so appreciate a father who's going to really invest in his kids. Um, at the top of the program, I said happy birthday to Nathan. Nathan just got out of our kindergarten class. And I promise you, this is a boy who could answer a lot of questions on this radio program. He's so invested in the Word. That's because mom and dad have really taken a lot of time to sit down with him. And boy, he's just kind of taken off and run with it. And it's a good thing. I'd love to see that happen in your family as well. Does that help, Ramon? Yes, sir. Yes, sir, it does. And that, that's kind of where I was preaching on the Psalms. And I said, well, let, it, let me start back that way to King David. That way they know, you know, who he was and where he came from. So that's why we started kind of unorthodox in First Samuel. But... That was yeah. my thought. <laughs> yeah, and and First Samuel would be a tough one, but but I think rather than go back to First Samuel, I think as you're studying the Psalms with your kids, um, you just have enough of background to explain to him or to the, to the girls explain what David was experiencing. This was a time David wrote this psalm when he was hiding from King Saul who wanted to kill him and he was hiding in the caves and this this went on for 10 years. And that will 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 pique their interest. Well, why was he hiding from the king? And and you can go back and tell them those things. Now you have to have the background to be able to do that. But the psalms sort of stand alone. So just be willing instead of going back and and throwing all the details at them at once. Um this is a, a man who was going through a really difficult time, or this was a time when he was sad, or this happened uh, when his son died, and, and they can understand the heart of the man of God who is being poured out, and the difficulty he was going through. You know, too often we look at King David as the slayer of Goliath, and he was, but we don't focus enough on the really difficult times. In, for example, Psalm 84 he wrote that after he'd been in the caves for 10 years and all he wanted was to be in the presence of God, in the house of God. And he knew he couldn't and it broke his heart. So those are the kind of details, the backgrounds that you can give the girls. God bless you, Ramon, for that. I appreciate your effort and so too does our Lord. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. here is a question from Danny. 
He says, is it okay for a Christian to sue another Christian when that person has cheated you? Danny, you're not going to like my answer. If you're, you're asking because somebody's cheated you, you're not going to like my answer. It is never okay for a Christian to sue another Christian before unbelievers. And of course, our legal system is before unbelievers. It's never okay. Now, I realize people violate that all the time, and they have all kinds of, well, they're not acting like a believer, so I'm going to treat them like an unbeliever. It's not wrong to sue people. It's not wrong to use our justice system. But to compromise our witness, to have two believers go to court and sit in front of an unbelieving judge and air our dirty laundry is an affront to God. It's an embarrassment. When Paul was writing to the church at Corinth in, I think, the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians, this is one of the things that he was telling them. How can, how can you do this? Have you no shame? You're, you're just airing your dirty laundry in front of unbelievers. And, and um, Paul is saying, when you do that, you've already lost. You've, you're already defeated. Why would you rather not, rather not be wronged, he said, than to take this unsavory step so Danny it's not okay now I realize that when we are treated every ounce of our flesh is like rebelling against us we've got to get even I'm not going to let anybody do that to me believe me when you are persecuted for righteousness sake when you're willing to lose just because you don't want to bring shame on the name of the Lord you've really won and I promise you this the Lord's pleasure will be so obvious to you you'll be happy that you didn't take matters into your own hands I've had this situation come up in church quite a few times over 25 years here and the hardest thing to do is to convince somebody that just let them get away with it don't take them to court don't want to pound their flesh just trust that the Lord will take care of you. And without exception, when the Christian who was about to sue chose not to sue, God was the one who vindicated them and God was the one who provided for them. Doesn't feel good to our flesh. In fact, our flesh hates it. But, what can I say? That's what the Bible tells us to do. Do not take an un- a believer to court in front of unbelievers. Instead, Jesus, they didn't steal from me, they stole from you. They didn't cheat me, they cheated you. Boy, that takes great faith. Thanks for the question. Here is a question from Donald. He says, Does God still raise people from the dead? Um, Donald, you know, if if he does, there's there's a real lack of evidence for that. Um, certainly, God can still raise people from the dead, and probably somewhere that I'm unaware of, there's been somebody raised from the dead. But but it's not a normal thing. And I think sometimes when we read through the New Testament or we read through the Book of Acts, we see people being raised from the dead. And then we get the impression that this was something that happened all the time. It didn't. It just didn't. Nor does it happen now. 
if somebody were truly dead and raised from the dead, I had a man that I really enjoyed, uh, an apologist, uh, several years ago, um, who um, at a young age uh, developed cancer, and it was very aggressive, and it happened very quickly, and, and he died. And his wife intentionally held off the burial for four days. And she did. She said, well, Lazarus had been dead for four days, and God still raised him from the dead. And I don't want him in the ground until after four days. So on the fifth day, they had the funeral. And she was devastated because, well, God could have raised him from the dead. That wasn't God's plan. So when you hear people saying, I, we had a resurrection in our church. And unfortunately, there are churches that say those things. Um, if there's no proof, it's not true. So no, God doesn't still raise people from the dead the way he did before. Somebody who is verifiably dead. That person, if he's a believer, she's a believer. They're with Jesus. Ted says, um, Pastor Ron, how would you respond to people who say that Revelation isn't for us now, but was only about Rome and was fulfilled in the days of the Roman Empire. Um, Ted, as nicely as I could, I would probably tell them to, to, to honestly read the book without any preconceived ideas. It is impossible, the language, the tenses in the Greek, it's impossible that the book of Revelation isn't for us. Um, there's so much there, and, and so much of the book of Revelation is future. We're to look for the coming of the Lord. Um, so I would just tell them that, that, that it wasn't only about Rome. Now, you're probably talking about somebody with a view, it's called preterism. And the preterist would say that all of the prophecies in the Bible were fulfilled, in, including Revelation, were fulfilled in 70 A.D., when the Roman general Titus surrounded the city of Jerusalem and completely destroyed it. Well, that was a partial fulfillment, and prophecy all, uh, often has both a short-term and long-term fulfillment. And, and so, yeah, it was partially fulfilled. Jesus on the Mount of Olives in his Olivet Discourse, uh, he warned the people that, that um, the armies of Rome were going to be coming. It was some 38 years after Jesus' death and resurrection when it happened. And there were some people who remembered Jesus' warnings and they were spared. Um, so yeah, there was a partial fulfillment in, in, in the Roman Empire um, was a, a picture of the world that we live in now and will live in at the end of times. But certainly all prophecy wasn't fulfilled. If you look at the book of Revelation, look at Genesis chapter 9, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 9 clearly has not been fulfilled. He will come, he will set his feet on the Mount of Olives, it will split in two and there will be an earthquake as there's never been another earthquake. And the whole world will see, at the same time the whole world will see him, supernatural event, that hasn't happened yet. Go to Revelation chapter 22, actually part of 21 and 22. That hasn't happened yet. So I'd, I'd ask him to explain to me 
Well, if it's been fulfilled in 70 A.D., what do you do with the parts of the prophecy that have not yet been fulfilled? If all prophecies fulfilled and those prophecies haven't been true, well, then we can throw away the whole Bible. So preterism, Ted, sounds really smart. People like it because it's difficult and there's some mental gymnastics that need to be done and and, and they feel like they're sort of puffed up with knowledge. Um, but it makes absolutely no sense at all. No sense at all. Ted, I've got an entire Bible study on the book of Revelation. I've got my notes on our website at calvaryessay.com. I've also got um, our um, recorded teachings um, for free. Everything is for free. And uh, I think that will answer a lot of your questions. Uh, Actually, you only need to listen to one if you will listen to the very first study uh, in Revelation chapter 1, uh, we, we talk about the, the book of Revelation, the audience, um, who was being spoken to, the long-term effect, the practical effect, and the prophetic value of the book as well. Here is an anonymous question that I want to shout and say amen <laughs> to even before I read the question. Uh, he or she says, do you think we're in the last generation before Jesus comes back? I do, I really do. Now, as I say this, I want to, I'm not prophesying it. I'm not pretending that I've got some secret insight. Uh, I thought Jesus would be back before now, and so far I've been wrong. But yes, Anonymous, I do believe we're in the last generation before Jesus comes back. Um, I think, with even a greater sense of urgency, we're in the very last days of the last days. Uh, if I'm healthy, and if I could live another 10 or 15 years, uh, I think that I'll see the return of the Lord, and I think I'll see the rapture of the church. But if he tarries, if it doesn't come, I'm going to have my own personal rapture, I'm going to be with him. But that still doesn't mitigate against the fact that we're in the last days. Second Timothy chapter 3 Remember, this is Paul's farewell. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness. And then he goes right in with his instructions for his son in the faith, Timothy. And he says this, and this is a military charge, a military command. Mark this. Make special note of this. In the last days, there will be perilous times. And there is in the next two verses a a vivid description of what that world is going to look like. Now, we've been reading this passage of Scripture, you know, our our entire generation of Christians now, but we could always look and say, well, you know, things aren't like this yet. And we can have some false sense of comfort that's not going to get that way. Well, all one has to do now is look around at the world we live in, see how quickly things have changed and are continuing to change. And we have to admit, if we're honest, that, boy, the world looks just like this. Without love. Just think about this. Without love. The, the word means, the King James says, without natural affection. And it describes the, the instinctive love a mother has for a child. We've murdered 65 million babies. Why? Because we don't have that love. A baby has become a choice. Not only that, But look at the things that are going on just in the time that we live in right now here in San Antonio, Texas. The the 
protests, the riots that are going on all over the world, the, the, the heinous murdering of people. That's without natural affection. And that's just one of them, lawlessness. People that don't love God, but instead only want what their flesh wants. I mean, that's described... And all you got to do is honestly look at that passage of Scripture, look at the time that we live in, and say, we're getting there in the last days. So, Anonymous, yes, I think Jesus is coming back. I think um, we'll see him. But even if he tarries a bit, we're still in the last of the last days. Here is my last question for the day. It comes from Chris. He says, what are the dates the four Gospels were written? Um, Chris, the the dating of the Gospel accounts is really difficult, with the exception of the the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was written uh, when John was an older man. And uh, I'm going to go back to this. I've got time for one call, and somebody just called in. So let me go to Mike on line one, and I'll get back to that question tomorrow, Chris. Mike, you're on the air. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, okay. I had a question about uh, the second letter of Clement. Um, it's in the, the New Testament Apocrypha. Um, I found that it's been very beneficial to me. Um, now, it, it seems, you know, entirely orthodox in nature, uh, but mm-hmm. it does quote from what a lot of the uh, scholars call the, the Gospel of the Egyptians. Um, but the way that he interprets those things which seem like they have some affinity to uh, like Gnosticism that he interprets this in an orthodox way so but my question is uh, is is Beckham Clement orthodox in nature and then also uh, if so what can we glean from its use of the gospel of the Egyptians okay Michael, I'll do the best. I've got less than two minutes to do this, and that's certainly not enough time. But let me say this, uh, and, and maybe I'll revisit this tomorrow at the top of the show. as Well, not tomorrow, but Friday, because tomorrow's a date day show with Paul. Um, the, the only value that the apocryphal books have, all of them, not just the one that, that you mentioned, but all of them, is the historical value. They're not inspired by God. Um, If we view them as though they really belong in the Bible, they've never been a part of the Jewish canon of Scripture, uh, never accepted by Jews as as Orthodox Scripture. Um, There is some historical value, uh, especially the Maccabees and and the stories uh, there, but but they're not inspired by God. And I think... Uh, to spend a lot of time studying them uh, for any reason other than the historical intrigue uh, is is time that's wasted. Um, I just don't believe there's any value in the interpretation. Um, uh, I don't think when people are are exegeting them, they're waste. I, I think personally, they're wasting their time. Um, you know, we we. We know there were lots of Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Barnabas. Um, again, historical value, but that is, from my perspective, Mike, the only value that they have. Well, we're out of time for today. Tomorrow, Paul will be live in studio with us on the Word to Stand Up for Life. Ladies, it's your day to be encouraged or ask questions. You've been listening to the 
Word to stand up for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. May the Lord bless you and keep you. will see you tomorrow at 4 on AM 630 The Word. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.